Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. First off, we would like to thank W.J. Pierce for creating and performing that wonderful piece of music you just heard. Uh, good evening and welcome to Thorning Cross Haunted Nights Live. Uh, I am Alistair Cross, and tonight we're doing things a little bit differently for a couple of different reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, Tamara Thorne, my, my co-host and collaborator, has the night off. And uh, joining us is... Uh, Q.L. Pierce, and the reason she, she's going to be hosting, though, she's uh, we, we've decided to start a new uh, kind of thing that we're, we're doing. It's a YA horror, because we get a lot of requests for young adult uh, interviews, and uh, Q is uh, the author of the best-selling Scary Stories for Sleepovers and many other books for youngsters. Uh, she's just recently published Fine Chillers, Hair Raising Tells, the first in a new series of scary stories for the next generation. Uh, she'll be joining it. She'll be uh, on the show on a regular basis uh, as we go ahead and do uh, interview horror authors for, you know, horror aimed at kids through young adults. So I'm just going to kind of hang back. We, we uh, I'm just going to kind of hang back and let her take care of it. And so uh, without further ado, uh, Hugh, it's, it's all yours. Well, thank you so much. Um I am just so excited to be starting off tonight with Briar Lee Mitchell and Jack Keeley. Uh, they are the co-authors of the Whistlebrass Horror uh, series, among other books for young readers. And I have to say, I have read both Whistlebrass books. And to everyone listening, if you have a tween to teen in your household who loves their mystery adventure with a big side of spooky this is the series for them. I was just riveted. So welcome, Briar and Jack. Thank you. Q, it's wonderful to be here with you tonight. I'm glad that you like the books. Yes, thank you oh, very much. It's, it's, it's very nice to hear that. All right. Well, one of the tips that I give to young writers is uh, to try as many different things and learn all you can so that you have a body of experience to draw from when you write. And in looking at your bios, you two are living examples of that philosophy. So, Briar, um, you're a scuba diver. And, well, I uh, – uh-huh, go ahead. Oh, well, it says uh, you spent time in the Bahamas and you were offered a reward from the Navy base there for finding <laughs> live torpedoes. <laughs> Wow. That inspired a book titled Dark Light. Tell me a little about that experience and about the book. Uh, Dark Lights I started a number of years ago. It was based on time I spent on Andros Island in the Bahamas. I went there when I was in college with about four or five other people from the University of Ohio. And we we flew over in this rickety little old plane and uh, oh. landed there. It, it was a DC-3, and when we would turn, I'll never forget, our, the guy sitting next to me had a glass of juice, and when the plane turned, you know, it's a prop plane, so it went right up on wingtip and 
all of his juice went to these people across the aisle. It was just amazing. <laughs> but we uh, we landed, and there was um, there's a naval base on the island called Autech, and they they test underwater. Um, Ordnance, so they would shoot torpedoes off into the deep part of the ocean. There, uh, they weren't armed, but they, you know, they would fire them off. And uh, so we were told when we landed there in our orientation that if we found one, because <laughs> they couldn't find them all the time, that if we found one, uh, we'd get a $100 reward. Of course, I immediately stepped up and said, really? Well, how do we know <laughs> if we found a live <laughs> torpedo? I mean, one of us blows up. And uh, the, the naval officer was really irritated with me, and he said, no, no, you'll just hear it ticking. So I went to him, I said, if I'm a mile offshore and I hear something ticking, I'm just, I'm going to walk on water, and I'm going right back to land. So when I was there, there was no power. We were at the beginning of the storms. We were living in tents on the beach, and I visited this uh, weird, weird, weird uh, abandoned logging camp on the north end of the island that was so creepy and bizarre. But that's where the story started from because I was there, and I was imagining, well, why is this place so dead-looking? What would have happened here? And so there, my imagination just fired off from that. Oh, my that sounds uh, a little scary. <laughs> I'm not, not very good about flying, so I don't know if I would ever have gotten that far. Um, Jack, some some say that you were the son of a celebrated spiritualist or that you grew up in the wagons of a traveling carnival. I am intrigued. What is the story behind that? Well, people say all kinds of things. So, <laughs> you know. The fact that they may or may not be true is not anything. Uh, okay. So, no, I'm just a you, I'm just a I'm just a earnest illustrator, that's all. Oh. Have, uh, have you ever traveled with a carnival or No. No, I just you know, <laughs> when I was putting together that bio I was reading bios of old movie stars from nineteen twenties Hollywood and they would just make uh-huh. up all of this fabulous stuff and I thought you know, saying I was I went to art school sounds so dull. So I just thought, well, <laughs> I'll just say some say he. <laughs> you know, so people can say all kinds of things. Doesn't mean it's true. Well, it, but, it got my attention. Well, I'm glad the rest of the bio, the rest of the bio is true. I went to um, Rhode Island School of Design as an illustration student, and and I've been basically drawing and writing ever since. Okay, um, Briar. Um, Mm-hmm. Another sort of an unusual experience. You visited McMurdo Base in Antarctica. What were you doing mm-hmm. there, and how did the experience influence your series, Walking on Mars? I could almost say, well, I got in the wrong plane. <laughs> I ended up there. I was, I was supposed to be in Maui, but you know, I ended up in Antarctica. Um, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I belong to a, a group of artists called the Air Force Artists, and I'll create paintings every couple of years for the National Archives. I uh, lobbied to go there because I wanted to see the Southern Lights, and um, I really just wanted to see in our Antarctica. Uh, it's such an amazing place. So uh, I flew there with the Air Force, and uh, James Cameron was with us. So he and I were the only two civilians on that trip. And uh, he had just finished True Lies, and he was in the process of uh, getting the underwater 
uh, dive set up for Titanic. So he and I were together oh. for three weeks down there and in uh, New Zealand. But that's what I was doing there was research for this painting. So Antarctica is such an amazing place because you really feel like you've just stepped onto another planet. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, I wrote a series of books, uh, fictional stories about a um, – a reporter who's down there, and uh, based on a lot of the things that I did when I was there, and it's called Walking on Mars because it really does. It really feels like I left Earth, <laughs> and I stepped uh-huh. off this airplane, and I'm on a whole other planet. It's just a remarkable place to see, and I love that series, and I really, i got to tell you, it is just an amazing place. I would, at the drop of a hat, go back to Antarctica. Even over Maui, I would do it. <laughs> And there's a very limited amount of time of the year that you can go there, right? Yes, exactly. Uh, we were there in the springtime. We were land. We landed on a frozen ocean, the the Ross Sea, actually, near uh, Mount Erebus, which is a, a big blue volcano there. And um, uh, we got off the plane, and it's eight feet thick ice with 1,500 feet of water below our 800,000-pound plane. And I stepped on the ice and looked down, and there were cracks everywhere. And oh, some of oh them were leaking water. And I looked, and I said, shouldn't we go back, like, right now? <laughs> <laughs> no, we're okay. We've done this for years. But that was really freaky to see the water here and there yeah. squirting up from the ice. <laughs> But Jack, you you earned your BFA at the Rhode Island School of Design and your MFA at the Cranbrook Academy of Art. How does your art training affect your writing? Well, I think that, um, you know, I've always been sort of a visual thinker. And, uh, you know, so the when we started this, a lot of it initially came out of ideas I had, you know, scenes that I had envisioned, haunted houses and, you know, creepy New England mm-hmm. towns and things. And then, you know, and, and Briar is such a, a excellent person when it comes to plotting. I thought it would be really fun to work with her and, and create a story out of this. And so, uh, you know, I I enjoy, you know, employing the visuals and, and uh, you know, and then um, doing the illustrations for the books, too. I, I I, when I when we first started the first book, um, my original idea was I would do like three little illustrations and then they would repeat for each chapter. But then I thought well, it would be much more fun if there was a different illustration for every chapter. So I suggested that, and the publisher said, "Okay, great." You know, and then I thought, "Well, you've just multiplied the number of drawings by you know a, to, from three to 30. But um, so it's been really fun and and. Uh, you know, some and sometimes I envision images and I send Briar illustrations, and then those, you know, I had one of the sketches for um, the current book, uh, the Whistlebreath Storm Watcher. I had drawn all these bats, and Briar said, "Oh, well, we have to put bats in." So, um, <laughs> so it's fun. The 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 illustrations and the, and the stories definitely influence each other. And one of the things that's been fun about doing the covers is that so far. Um, and I guess I'm going to do it for the third book in the series. I didn't have any reference for the monster faces on the cover, so I just used selfies. So I, I told Briar, my, my, uh, my autobiography is going to be titled something like, Yes, I am the monster or something. <laughs> he is. He's the monster. So. I don't want to give away anything, but my my favorite illustration now is it's the front of a, a Viking 
relationship. You'll know, oh, you know what I'm talking about. It's right. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Isn't that gorgeous? Oh, it's amazing. Yes. It so, is now amazing. you mentioned haunted houses, um, Jack. Have you ever been to one? Well, you know, I've been in a lot of um, I, I, abandoned houses attract me like a magnet, and I just, you know, I always mm-hmm. love exploring them and, and going through And I've been in some that, you know, people have claimed were haunted, but um, I've never seen any ghosts, friendly or otherwise. I, but I, I, I'm... I just, you know, I, I grew up in a in a town that had a lot of old Victorian houses, and I'm just I'm fascinated by, you know, the the sort of the the classic haunted house that you that you picture in Halloween illustrations uh-huh. or in old movies. I just I love that kind of house, and I, you know, I, I one of my friends said, "What would your ideal house have?" And I said, "Oh, bats." <laughs> so, that was the first thing on my list, and then you know maybe a tower and some creaking shutters would be good. But you know, well, bats are actually a nice, nice thing to have around the house. They, they are. I love bats. I think they're so cute. So, <laughs> so Briar, uh, another wild thing that you do is you're you've been a search and rescue volunteer, and with your dog Thor, you Thor. have launched. To locate missing uh, persons. So, mm-hmm. how has that contributed to your writing? Oh gosh. Um, well, you know, I started doing that about ten years ago with my first search dog, Barty Thor. He's been with me now for like a little over three years. Um, it's a very different world. These are actual cases, so I'm looking for actual homicide victims. And uh, uh, you get so caught up in the, you know, who killed them and why are they out here? And I'm out in the middle of the woods with maybe a couple of people with me walking through just the middle of nowhere looking for a body. Well, <laughs> that'll fire your imagination off big time. Um, I, it's very hard work, and I, but it's I love doing it. And as far as how it affects my writing, I think it's just such a remarkably different world for a short amount of time when I'm in there doing that, that it's just, you know, it gives me a chance to really catch up on what I'm trying to do in, in everything. I don't know. I'm giving you a bad answer, but it, it just is a nice oh, no, way to no, really start no. to think about stuff in a different way because it's a very different world than sitting behind a computer and teaching people how to paint. <laughs> you know, I, I, Briar actually oh. always seems like such an adventurous to me. You know, we're always, the, last year she was she went swimming with sharks. You know, she goes to Antarctica. She swims with sharks. She, you know, she goes on these search and rescue things. And then I say, oh, I drew a cat. So <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my life is not nearly as adventurous as Briar's. I just think it's great that she does You never know what's coming. That's true. That's true. Be careful, Jack. Be careful. I noticed in, in the Whistlebrass stories that the um, – the animals are such wonderful characters, and as an animal lover myself, I you know I'm always worried for for them in in books and that sort of thing. And <laughs> you have what five five dogs? I do. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. And uh, so, do you do any of your animals reflect in the characters in Whistlebreath? Jack, you got to answer that one. Okay. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I don't have a dog right now, but when um, when we first started this, I said to Briar, 
you know, I, I've had do- I've had dogs that have ranged in size from a miniature pincher who was as big as a minute to a giant Saint Bernard. Um, and I said to, and I was talking, and I said, I really would like to have a Saint Bernard in this book. And and I told I told Briar that when I was a, a kid, I had a Saint Bernard named Penny. And so Briar said, Well, we'll have to name the Saint Bernard Penny. So it's so the 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 dog in the book was uh, in a large part based on my my Saint Bernard Penny, who really seemed to be sort of superhuman. She so she could always sort of sense what you wanted and you know what 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 the mood was in the house. She was a wonderful dog. So she, and, and I, and I, and I just love black cats. And so I said, let's put a black cat into the book. But it's, it's funny. One of my friends who read the first one said, I thought at one point that the animals were talking. And then I went back and I read it and, and they said, and then they weren't. And he said, it's, but they're so involved with the storyline that, um, I felt like they were talking. I said, no, they're just dogs and cats. They do a lot of strange things, but they're just dogs and cats. But and, it's funny that's because, really true, though. So, yeah. They're very expressive as well, characters. Well, it's funny yeah. because you, know, you you mentioned being concerned about the animals, and, and with Briar as a, a co-writer, I can guarantee you that nothing bad ever happens to the, to the animals. <laughs> she's, she's, you know... They they always wind up on skates. The people seem to drop like flies, but uh, the animals <laughs> yeah. are always safe. So. That's um, right. Keep the important well, ones as, around. As In a writer, I'm very happy that you take good care of the critters in your book. Yeah. Well, we do. Yes. In, in, in Briar's book about the, sh- um, the shark that she wrote, you even wind up having sympathy for the shark, which I thought was kind of amazing. Um <laughs> So, but it's yeah. I, I I we're both we are both animal lovers, and and although I'm not in a position to have a dog right now, I'm always looking at search and rescue sites online. And and for the longest time, I, I thought I wanted a German Shepherd. Now I've been looking at boxers and and mixed breeds and all kinds of dogs. But you know, someday I'll get another dog. But I we we made a point, and it's a really small point um, in the book of mentioning that. The St. Bernard in the book is a rescue dog because we thought in a subtle way we were hoping to maybe encourage somebody to think, oh, what a good idea, I'll rescue a dog. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I also noticed, again, without giving anything away, there was a mention of a nature center in um, the second book that I thought was really very nicely placed. Oh, good, and, good. Uh, so, for the, again, for those of us who are animal lovers and who, who really – I have a T-shirt that says, I don't care who else dies in the movie as long as the dog lives. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much our I think philosophy a lot of people right there. Like that. Well, it's mm-hmm. funny. In, in, in Briar, again, in Briar's shark book, there's a scene where this, uh, these people are on a boat, and there's a little dog on the boat on the deck, and I thought, I know what's going to happen. They're gonna, <laughs> the boat's in danger, the people are in danger, but nothing's going to happen to that dog. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you, Briar. <laughs> well, he was the only one that ended up with his life preserver on. <laughs> yeah, was, somebody found him bobbing around in the water. So, so. But um, yeah, the animals, and you know, and and it's fun because the you know the animals do become you know characters of their own. And and initially, Carlisle the cat wasn't going to be in the second book, and then I said, let's put Carlisle in, and so he shows up again, and and. And uh, he he becomes a main a main character. 
and and an, an excellent one. Another question, Jack. Um, you've illustrated uh, more than thirty children's books, including the hugely popular Grossology series. Yes. Uh, by Sylvia Brandi, and also the Scarescape series by Jake. Is it Bible? Yes. Um, what were some of the challenges in the Grossology? Because I know you know how much kids love that kind of thing. That was so. A, that, how did you just? That was a how funny, did you decide on how to present that art? Well, you know, it, the whole, that whole experience was funny because one of the misconceptions people have about children's books is if, the, if they write one, they need to go find somebody to do the pictures, and they don't. It's the publisher who usually assigns an illustrator, and the author doesn't usually know who the illustrator is going to be. And they sent me the manuscripts um, for Grossology, and initially, I didn't want to do it. I had drawn all these other books, and, and Grossology arrived, and it's about dripping snot and diarrhea and stomach right. viruses <laughs> and, and all these horrible things. And Sylvia Brancy's stroke of genius was she took – it's basically the sort of dull information that you might find in a, in a grade school health book, but instead of saying, you know, how your digestive system works. She'll say, you know, why do you burp? And and so she made everything funny, and she calls it stealth learning, or the publisher, somebody did. But anyway, the kids read these things because they're funny, and they don't realize they're actually learning mm-hmm. body science. But I initially had hesitated doing it because I, I, you know, I just wasn't sure how you could do these pictures. And in the, in the meantime, the publisher... Sylvia had requested a sample of the illustrator's work, and I swear if the publisher had searched every drawing I've ever done in my life to find the least appropriate one, they couldn't have done a better job. They sent her a very sweet drawing of bunnies picking flowers, and she nearly exploded. She called me up and said, I don't think you're the right person for this book at all. And I, and I decided I was going to prove her wrong and prove that I could do it. And... Um, and it turned out to be really fun. And 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 the, the challenge was, you know, there are things that were too disgusting to draw and things that were intangible, like odors and things. So I had to find ways to imply things and to, you know, like for foot odor, I drew an angry shoe. And I mean, there was it was a lot of fun because you had to sort of skirt the issue sometimes. And I think one of the things that made the books popular is that the, the I tried to make the drawings kind of fun and funny and appealing and sort of treat them a little differently with the section on runny noses. And I thought, well, you feel like you're a dripping faucet, so I drew a man with a faucet for a head, and, and it was one of the most popular books in the series. And then we and then and I just thought, well, this is a one-off, and but you know, it spawned grossology, animal grossology, virtual grossology, grossology begins at home, hands-on grossology. There's a museum exhibition, and it's gone on and on. And uh, Sylvia and I, over the years, have become great friends and, and have yeah. really enjoyed collaborating. Um, kids love that kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sylvia said it's funny because frequently parents will come up and one parent will say, you know, I just don't really care for your book. It's so gross. And then the other parent will say, but, you know, it's the first book that our kid has ever read cover to cover. So um, <laughs> right. they, they, do, they, do like, they do like it. And, and, and Sylvia is very adamant about um, keeping the uh, educational aspect to it. So, you, you know, you learn about blood cells and you learn about all kinds of things when you read the books. 
and they don't Jack gave why me. for doing it. Okay. Yeah, and Jack you, gave me one. He gave me his collector's edition of it with plastic vomit on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the newer, the newer editions, the original Pretty first nice. edition. The really first nice. Really nice. Edition had uh, fake vomit attached to the cover. <laughs> But you I guess the price of vomit has gone up over the years because it no longer has that. No. You guys co-authored the Whistle Brass Mystery. So yeah. um, I'd, like, I'd like to talk about that, but first let me read the back cover co- copy from the first book. Okay. Okay. Um, and uh, that's Whistle Brass Horror. Shortly after Teenager... The teenage newcomer, Casey Wilde, arrives in the haunted town of Whistlebrass, Vermont. His little sister disappears. Finding her won't be easy. Casey's up against a suave sociopath, a legion of living shadows, and a reptilian humanoid capable of stealing his life force and crushing him into dust. Who can Casey ask for help when no sane adult will believe his story? So, Briar, where did the idea for the Whistle Blast series come from? Jack and I have known each other now, gosh, I want to say about 15 years. It probably, probably has been that long. Yes, <laughs> I think it has been. And we used to have lunch together once a week because we taught at the same campus in Los Angeles. And he, he, Jack was going on a trip to Florida and was going by train, and I thought, well, it'll be fun. I gave him one of my books to read, and then, Jack, you can tell the rest. Okay, I I read the book, and and I had always wanted to, to write a book, but I never kind of did it. I I have a lot of first chapters, and that's as far as they went. I thought, well, she made it all the way to the end. So. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so I came back, and I said, Briar, Briar, you know, we should collaborate on a book, and, and – she was not eager to do this um, initially, and you know, is you know, because writing is really usually such a private, you know, solitary pursuit. But I kind of persisted, and and um, so she asked me what I thought the book would be about, and I and we talked about it, you know, and and being from New England and liking spooky things and Halloween and so on, I I said I want to have a you know, an abandoned theater, and I want to have a, a haunted, you know, this, and I want to have a black cat. And I want, so um, Briar went off, and she sort of worked out a chapter, and um, we met and we talked about it and where it might go, and it kind of grew organically from there. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, so we, we kind of have this system worked out where Briar forges ahead. We, we talk about an out, a, a kind of a vague outline of the plot, and Briar forges ahead, and she writes a chapter, and then she sends it back to me. And I, I said to Briar, it's kind of like she's the contractor, and I'm the interior designer because she, <laughs> you know, she, she is definitely the architect of the of the plots for the most part. And a lot of the humor that's in there, and a lot of the wording and the wordplay and the names and the street names and things are from me because, you know, I have that sort of cartoonist sensibility. So. Um, but it, so it, that's that's how it happened, and you know, and some of the characters we wanted, uh, we it initially we wanted it set in the 1950s, um, but the one of the publishers we talked to said 
he preferred if it was in the present time. So we thought, well, if it's in this strange little town, sort of caught in time, you don't even know, it doesn't seem like it's any time in particular. So we're not tied into the latest technology because in Whistlebrass, Vermont, they don't really deal with it. Um, but it, it's fun. So, it, But the, 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 the process that we go through results in a lot of surprises because sometimes we'll have an idea of, you know, this is what will happen in this chapter, and then Briar will have a brainstorm while floating around in a swimming pool, and she'll send me the chapter back, and something completely unexpected happens. And uh, and so, you know, it. And so that's fun for me. And then, um, and then I'll do a bit of embroidery and send it back to her. And and uh, you know, she, you know, so we bat we bat it back and forth. You know, and we're both on opposite sides of the country, so it's it's we never get mm-hmm. to see each other. And we used to have lunch every week, and now it's all done by you know phone and fax and not fax, but phone and email and and uh, and, and Skype. Uh, Skype and everything. Mm-hmm. So, do you write as you go, or do you have a, a the plot sort of outlined and? Well, we we sort of we we know where we want to start and we know where we want to end. And we sort of have the plot in mind, um, but frequently, um, you know, it goes off on tangents that are unexpected. You know, and, and sometimes, you know, Briar will come up with it. And, and I don't want to tell you because I'll give things away, but there was a, there was a scene where um, in the second book where Bootsy Bamberger was supposed to peer into a tent and then kind of and see something shocking and then kind of leave. And then she does uh-huh. in the book peer into the tent, and a lot more happens than that. And I got I got the you know I I, w- I wound up getting the the thing saying, Briar, all these events happened and all this chaos. And Briar said, Well, you wanted Bootsy to get more involved in the plot, so um, she certainly did. But so it's fun. It's like a game, and you know, mm-hmm. and uh, um, we both enjoy what the other person does, and neither of us has. Some huge ego that says, "Oh no, I I said that they had to be wearing a green baseball cap, and you changed it into a blue one, so that can't be." So <laughs> it, it's 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 uh, it's just it's it's been fun. It's really been fun. It and has. I, and we unexpected. work very well together. Mm-hmm. And we do we surprise each other all the time when he'll send something back, and I just be totally, you know, enamored with it, and vice versa. So it's fun. We enjoy it, and it. It's constantly growing. So, yeah, we do have just a basic, vague-looking outline, and it grows from there. One of the things that really strikes me is your settings. Your settings are gorgeous, and I'm, I'm like, there. I can really feel it. And um, I know you're both artists, so that that must have an effect. But do you have that setting? Do you know exactly what whistle breath is and where you're going with it or does that also come sort of organically as you write it it kind of comes organically but also one of the things that really had an effect on the books is i'm from a town in upstate new york that is famous for um having less sunshine than almost any spot in the country so it was, <laughs> i had this sort of overcast childhood and my favorite time of year was fall because it was it looked like a calendar you know bright orange and red leaves and then they all fell off and it was fabulous halloween and then um so and 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 this town was full of old houses and with big porches and and uh so whistlebrass actually 
was kind of inspired by my hometown. And then also, having gone to school in Rhode Island and lived I lived in Boston for a while, so the whole New England area is 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 very real to me. And and although the corner of Vermont that we set this in is completely imaginary, but it's it's it takes it takes elements from all those other all those other New England and New York places that I grew up and and then you know and then Briar adds her own touches to it. And, and, uh, <laughs> I'll do things in the writing where I'll you know I'll send a message over to Jack. I want a boat. I want to bring a boat in there. Can we have a boat? Was there water anywhere near there? And he actually put together a little book for me with a map. <laughs> so I figure out where things are in the town, you know, and we uh, constantly grow from the map and adding little pictures and stuff to it. I do think that because we're both such visual people that, you know, I'm describing what I see in my head and Jack does the same thing and, and it just really works together. And I'm I'm so glad you get the feeling that you're there because that's really important for both of us to hear that. It's one of the things we really enjoy about writing, too. Well, and we like this is this is Alistair again, and we like uh, we we love hearing from you guys because it's uh, uh, always nice to hear uh, two people working together so you know uh, harmoniously. Uh, you know, because Tamara and I work together really well too, and a mm-hmm. lot of people have mm-hmm. not had that experience. So you guys are awesome. <laughs> oh, um, same yeah, with you. It's, it's very rare, apparently, but yeah. <laughs> Um, before we before we keep going, I just want to take a, a minute to remind the listeners that uh, this is Burning Cross Haunted Nights Live. Uh, we're your hosts, Alistair Cross, and for tonight, QL Pierce, who is going to be joining Tamara and I regularly uh, for a special for special editions of Burning Cross Haunted Nights Live, in which we will focus on uh, young adult horror and uh, the like. Uh, anyway, you can learn more about what we do at our websites, AlistairCross.com and TamaraThorn.com. Or you can visit our mutual blog at thornandcross.wordpress.com, or if you tweet, our handle is at thornandcross. Uh, be sure to visit us on Facebook and give our Haunted Nights Live page a like. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. And we are here with Briarly Mitchell and Jack Kiwi, uh, author of the Whistle Brass books, and they are fantastic. And that being said, I am going to turn it back over to you, Q. <laughs> okay. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about the second book in the series, uh, Whistle Brass Storm Watcher, which has just come out. And I, I tore through this book in, like, I couldn't put it down. I was, was done in a couple of days. It was so exciting. So I'm going to read the back cover, and then we'll talk about it a bit. Okay, so mudslides, mudslides unleashed by the torrential rains have revealed an archaeological oddity, a Viking village on the banks of Lake One Weird. Young Casey Wilde's excitement about the discovery soon turns to alarm when his friend appears with a Viking artifact and Wilde's story about an axe-wielding monster. In the blink of an eye, Casey finds himself in the center of an ancient feud and lives are at stake. With the fate of his friend hanging in the balance, Casey must solve a mystery surrounding a Viking king, a colonial ghost, a carnival fortune teller, and a calculating cat named Carlisle, and it looks like another storm is on the way. <laughs> so, Jack, you do the art for these books. Mm-hmm. Um, 
how, how does the art itself, uh, how is that done? Do you do the manuscript first and then do the art, or do you do it as you go along? I did the covers really before the, the – I did the cover for the second book and the cover for the first book together. I, we had tried different things. We, there was a, the original cover had cat's eyes on it, and we tried them with you know, letters made out of stone and <clears throat> different things. And then I had the idea for the current covers, which have a silhouette in the foreground. Brian and I had talked about not wanting to really clearly portray the characters in terms of their faces and what they look like, because we wanted the readers to be able to sort of envision them. And so I, in the foreground of the illustration, there's a silhouette of the characters involved in the plot. And then in the background, there's a sort of moody, misty face of whatever monster is menacing them at that time. And so there, this, I envision the series as looking like that, and the first one was red and the second one was blue. And, and I sent them off to Breyer and, and to the publisher, and they were very happy with them. So I thought, okay, well, great. So the third one I, you know, is, is going to be another in the series, and um, I'm, I haven't really started that one yet. I've been sort of envisioning it, but I haven't really started it. The, the artwork itself... Um, is done as a combination of old-fashioned traditional media and then digital media. The drawings, the silhouettes and the drawings and all of the sketches inside the book, I sit there covered with ink, drawing drawing away with my pen at my drafting table, and when I get all the drawings done, <coughs> I, I scan them, and then I use the computer to put color or shading into them. So it's a mix mm. of, of old-fashioned pen and ink and and newfangled computers. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you answered one of my questions. I, I was hoping that you would say there would be other books in the series, so you, so there's going to be a third coming up then, right? Yes, we're we're already at work on the third one, and um, mm-hmm. and we it, it, the interesting thing, one of the things that's fun about doing this is that we've kind of now when we did the first one, we were sort of inventing the world and. But then we had the town, and we had Casey Wilde and his friend Pike and some other people. And in the first book, there's this the trouble the the troublemaking teenage girl Bootsy who shows up in the second book. And Briar had and I had both wanted to give girls a bigger role in the second book. And so um, at the end, when the chips are down, um, Bootsy and another girl, a, a newcomer in town named Faye, wind up being very crucial to solving the 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 problems that the that the that the villains are causing um so it it's uh it, but the the third book now um so it, what i was going to say was that the you know in the first book casey's the central character in the second book casey has sort of moved a little bit off stage and pike becomes the central character and in the third one um we we've brought in a, another a small character from the first book, and he has a bigger role. Oh. And then, and then uh, Pike is going to be involved, and Casey is going to be involved. But we, we've got Casey off stage again in the first one. His family is on vacation, but he'll be coming back. And uh, but it's it's fun because it's it's like we have a cast of characters. It's like okay, in this one, let's feature Bootsy, and this one let's fi- feature Pike. You know, and and so we get to, we get to play with different 
characters, and we're coming to know them better and better. And the the <clears throat> the librarian at the college, Arachne Greenweb, in the first book and in the second book, you know her her name, Arachne, of course means spider, and and she wears a silver lapel pin that's shaped like a spider. In the third (laughs) book, she becomes a major character, and you get more understanding as to why she wears a pin that's shaped like a spider. There are a lot of spiders involved in book three, so that was a new creepy Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, How about reading a sample for us from Stormwatcher? Okay, great. I'd like to. Um, Briar had had uh, mentioned that to me earlier, and I suggested reading a little bit of the end of the first chapter of Stormwatcher, and the the book opens with um, the character Pike, who's a teenage boy, and he's in Canada, and he was out doing some beach combing at night when a storm starts rolling in and uh this is the this is the end of the chapter pike has um sensed something in his midst and he winds up being put in a very perilous situation and his fate is left uncertain so from his vantage point on the cliff path pike could see the lights of the cottages scattered along the beach his aunt Hattie and Marlin and her husband Marlin would be down there, and they'd probably be wondering where he was. Hattie was sure to worry with Pike missing and a night storm rolling in. <clears throat> he had told her just an hour ago that he was going for a walk, just a walk along the shore, not far from their home. Innocent enough, safe, yeah, right. A mile from the McDermott cottage, pine, spruce, and hemlocks crept closer to the water, and the rocky beach began to narrow. Meandering trails led away from the beach and crisscrossed their way up the heavily wooded side of Switchback Mountain. Even in May, the night air was clean and cold. Restless winds in the trees accompanied the whispers and roars of waves against rock and sand. Pike had walked until he reached the point where the beach ended and Switchback Mountain loomed ahead, a granite cliff slapped by the sea. With his old backpack slung over his shoulder, he scanned the ground for any treasures washed up by the ocean or uncovered by the recent storm. As he reached down to scoop up a piece of burnished beast glass, moonlight revealed something half buried in the sand, a metal disc etched with some kind of design. He brushed it off, unzipped a pocket in his backpack, and tucked the new find inside. A nightbird cried overhead and a bellboy clanged, rocked by the cold Atlantic. <clears throat> the moonlight that had lit the path and sparkled on the icy waters was fading fast. Another storm was lo- looming over the Canadian coast, and judging by the thunderheads painting out the stars, this one promised to be a substantial blow. <clears throat> Rain began to pelt the beach, and lightning crackled across the dark sky. The air carried a smell, something burnt and unclean. He turned and saw the creature, standing like a hulking, rain-soaked statue. In a heartbeat, he had gone tearing across the sand and into the woods. As he raced up the path, he wondered if he had made the right decision. The creature howled. If that thing caught him, it was going to be bad, and Pike didn't want any part of bad right now. He continued north along the path, which drew closer to the edge of the cliff. He had a plan... But the sheer drop from the cliff to the rocks and sea below gave him second thoughts. Pike swore through gritted teeth. Get over it, kid, he told himself. There's no other option. The path ahead of him widened, 
into a clearing where an enormous flat rock jutted out from the cliff. He raced past a hand-painted wooden sign. It was virtually invisible in the pouring rain, but Pike had read it often enough to know what it said. Wits end viewpoint. Do not go beyond guardrail. Cliff edge with sheer drop below. Pike had shaken his head in amazement, watching fools inch close to the edge of the cliff, craning their necks for a glimpse of the little grotto in the cliff base 40 feet below. By day, breaking waves launched sprays of silver water in the air. Farther out, the Atlantic turned emerald green, its gorgeous color a warning that the depth of the icy water had dropped precipitously. He had never thought that the view was worth the risk. Not until now, as he neared wit's end, he called on his last reserves of strength, vaulted over a low log fence, and raced full, tit towards the pr- full tilt towards the precipice. With a whoop, he launched himself over the cliff's edge and out into space. Pike barely felt the axe blade that sliced through his leather jacket and left a ribbon of red across his back. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh. I want to read that. I want to read that book. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but, you know, it, it's almost like the storm itself as a character. It's really ominous. But it's very yeah, the storm. Exciting. The storms. The storms really do kind of become a, a a character, and then when they hit, when they hit whistle brass later on, you know, they the, the storm brings a lot of trouble with it. Well, I I noticed that. I mean, you're sort of a little bit of everything. You did the plot driven, and you know the character driven, but those characters just really stand out. So I'd like you each to, to answer which one is your favorite character and which one was the toughest to write? Oh, it's a hard question. <laughs> I don't know. I think uh, Penny. She's one of my favorites. Yes, the puppy dog. And um, um, gosh, I think Pike because he just is such a rebel. And he's so much fun to write because he doesn't believe in rules. And uh, he always has to think on his feet because usually something's chasing him, like he just (laughs) heard in that section that he read. So I'm going to say Pike and Penny. And we discovered in our book that we have a lot of characters that start with P. (laughs) Don't know how that happens. Isn't that funny how that happens? (laughs) It is. There's Pike and Penny and there's Pearl. (laughs) It's like (laughs) true. (laughs) So Jack, would you get an Well who's your Jack? Which one was Um, toughest for you? My which one is toughest for me? And which one's your favorite, and which one do you think was the toughest to develop, to really create? I think that you know it, it's it's hard to say that one was the toughest. I think that they're all <clears throat> they're all kind of equally challenging and familiar. Um, my favorite characters, actually, in some ways, are two of the minor characters in the first book. Um, and in the second book, Bootsy Bamberger. I, I just partially I love her name, but she's such an she's such an awful girl. But she has, as as you find out in the second book, she has some redeeming qualities too. And and one of the things that's that that I do like about the characters is that the bad ones aren't all bad, and the good ones tend to be not all good either. So they're they're kind of layered like that. Um, but I, I love Bootsy. I think she's a lot of fun and. Um, 
and the Bamberger family. Her brother Bobby Bamberger is going to show up more in the second, in the third book. Um, but I, I think that they're a lot of fun. But my favorite character, probably to work on, was in the first book, the <clears throat> the character that's described on the back cover as a suave sociopath, the the villainous arche- the villainous archaeologist Enoch Bloodwin, who, you know, he's sort of elegant and smarmy and horrible and all these things and uh just a lot of fun and it was funny because one of my friends um who I've known since college read the book and he said gee Enoch Bloodwin reminds me so much of you and I said Charlie Enoch <laughs> Bloodwin is the villain and and Charlie said yeah I know but I know the backstory so <laughs> uh, which I thought was funny but I I I I think his I think that his the his brand of elegant evil was kind of fun to deal with. Oh, that's nice. So, uh, that's nice. Now, uh, do you ever worry at all since you are, and I know this is the point of writing this, this type of book, but you are putting, like, Pearl um, and, you know, a young child in danger. Is there anything that you do that concerns you when you're writing that? Well, it does. I mean, we we make a point of um, of trying to uh, you know show that the that the that the children are are protected and loved by their families, and and that the, and I think one of the underlying things about both books that's kind of subtle but people enjoy is that friends and family are shown as being so important in both books and in the third one too, mm-hmm. um, but. You know, I, I part of it is I think when I was a kid with my toy guillotine and my love of monsters, <laughs> you know, I I loved being scared. You know, and and as you know with with your books too, um, kids like something chilling and they like being thrown in the middle of it. So um, uh, it, it's 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 something to to be considered. We we want to be sh- we want to be sure that they wind up. You know, safe and uh, and and, but but you know, it's 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 fun. I mean, it's more. I think it's more adventure, you know, than it is actual peril that we put them in. Yes, and I, and I have to say, from my perspective as well, I I think it's very healthy. And they, you're right, they do love the thrills and the chills, you know. So. Well, they, um, they love it, and I also, you know, I've, I've thought about it a lot, and I also think, you know, um, kids face a lot of dangers in the in a, the modern world, and you know, so I think in some ways, showing these kids and they face these dangers and they get through them with the help of their friends and family, you know, this may be kind of reassuring. I agree completely. Is there, um, is there anything in the book? For, and again, this is for both of you. Anything that surprised you that you truly did not expect to happen? <laughs> <laughs> um, oh gosh, we give it away, Jack. I know. I I, I'm so. I, it, I, you I know exactly to, what I'm thinking about. <laughs> yeah, there, there. I, I don't want to give away plot points, but I have to say there were three times, at least, during the second book, especially when we would sort of talk about something and then I'd send off my notes to Briar and Briar would send back a chapter and she would have 
done something that surprised me so much, I would either laugh out loud or I'd call and say, what did you do? You know, and um, so, yeah, I, and I, and I don't, I tend to let, as I said, Breyer tends to be the architect of the plot. So I don't think it, in a, I don't think when I surprise her, it's in as big a way, you know, um, you know, she'll suddenly throw in a situation or a character or do something, an event that I just think, oh my, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and I think for her, my, the surprises are smaller, you know, uh, she'll, you know, she'll send me something about a, a character named John and I'll change it to, you know, Oliver and send it back and, you know, embroidered and make it funnier or make it more mm-hmm. lurid or make it more colorful. Um, and, and she enjoys what I do with that. But I think mm-hmm. that uh, it's not as, the surprises aren't as big. She might, she, I think sometimes she's surprised, right. By the, like the tone of something or the humor I in, put into it. But she, mm-hmm. she, in the, in the second book, there were, like I say, I, and I don't want to give them away, but there were at least three times when I just, she, I was just floored by stuff that she had thrown in there. <laughs> we have fun with this. There's no doubt about it. It's like and a I game. don't do it on purpose. I don't do it on purpose, Jack. Really, I don't. You know, I'm <laughs> writing and I just go, wow, wait, no, this is really cool. And I put it in and then I'll get this frantic email. What? What on earth? <laughs> you know, I, I find oftentimes uh-huh. that sort of thing is when uh, when your readers comment to you, they'll find those moments. Mm-hmm. They zero uh-huh. in on them where, where you were truly <laughs> surprised yourself. You know. So yeah. now, um, do you, Jack? You had said that when you were a child, you enjoyed being scared. Um, What's the what was the scariest thing that happened to you? I, I, well, I don't know if anything scary ever really happened to me. It was more of a theatrical kind of enjoyment. You know, oh. I I love scary movies. I love I'm I'm from the same hometown as the, as Rod Serling who created the Twilight Zone. So there's something about that town. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I just you know the monsters, the Adams family, old horror, the old you know especially old classic horror movies on the Late Show, the werewolves and all those. They just mm-hmm. I just enjoy it so much, and I think in a way, and that's why the Whistle Breath books have almost a nostalgic feel about them in a way they the the world that they create is kind of like the world in an old movie and um mm-hmm. it's uh but it you know i i suppose actually you know really the scariest thing that happened to me as a kid has never been in any of the books i was seven and i was in the middle of um i was swimming out too far in a river and i couldn't really swim and i started going under and my sister, who was four years older, came streaking through the waves and pulled me out and rescued me, and <laughs> that sort of set the tone for our relationship from then. <laughs> so, oh wow! You know, so my my sister has always been kind of uh, in charge of her little brother, and even to this. Aw, your uh, hero. Yeah. So. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Briar, how about for you? Is there anything that uh, what scares you most? Um. Gosh, what scares me most is the dark. You know, and I, uh, I, I always had to have lights on everywhere when I was a kid. And when I'm writing, um, 
uh, when I was still living in L.A., my studio was upstairs, and I'd be writing, like, during the day, and then all of a sudden it would get to night, and I'd have to go down and turn every light on and then come back and turn the lights off to go downstairs. But I think that, you know, it just... I scare myself with my writing sometimes too, which is my favorite part of doing it. But I, I had one night when my dad and I were going somewhere and we had this really ancient Chevy and I'm from Canada. So this is up in the frozen North and it was very cold. I think it was maybe, <clears throat> I was probably eight and, uh, he had to go back in the house for something, so he left me alone in the car, and the car's running, and all of a sudden, I was surrounded by, like, a cloud, and it reminded me of this show from the Twilight Zone where <laughs> this whole section of the town gets scooped up by these horrible monsters in a cloud, and I was like, oh, my God, they're here. <laughs> it's happening. They're coming to get me, and it was just exhaust from the car, <laughs> I was sure I was going to be dead. My father comes out and looks at me like, what on earth are you screaming about? Yeah, I was uh, My imagination just carries me away. It really does. <laughs> and Twilight Zone could do that, couldn't it? Yes, yes. The best. The best. Okay, well, what's on the what's on the plate for, I know that you're doing the third whistle brass, but uh, any plans beyond that? Well, um, the we both have, you know, uh, an investment in this third whistle rest book, which is a lot of fun, and in, and we're also, you know, doing our solo projects. I have a book um, about which is, you know, I mentioned my sisters. This is it's about a a kid and his big sister, and they get involved with dragons. and And uh, it was I had written a poem for my sister just to entertain her about dragons, and she said, "Oh, you should turn this into a book." And so, it's kind of a solo project of mine that I've been working on, writing it and illustrating it. I'm working on a series now. It's a murder mystery based on the search and rescue that I do with the dogs, but it's uh, it's got a slight paranormal touch to it. So I'm really having a good time with that. All right. Well, I think we've, um, boy, the time sure has gone fast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Learned so much about the world of whistle brass, which I love, <laughs> and I can't wait to get back to it. But I'm going to uh, go back to Alistair. All right. I I think that was a lot of fun. I think that really worked out. And you know, seriously, for for the listeners, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna do this every so often. We're gonna have. Uh, Young Adult Horror tonight, and uh, it, it's, uh, it's very fitting that Hugh should do that. I wanted to ask, uh, before we let you go, Briar and Jack, very briefly, uh, what, where can uh, the listeners find out more about you? What are your websites, and et cetera, et cetera? Well, I have my personal website, which is jackkeely.com, but people who are interested in the books, um, you, know, you can find them in a lot of places, Amazon.com and so on, and there is actually a website up which is just called whistlebrass.com and it has links to uh, various places where you can buy the books mm-hmm. yeah and I have mine briarmitchell.com and all the same similar links that Jack has but everything we write uh, you can find it on Amazon Barnes and Noble and uh, places also that sell for Nook alright perfect well we have had a good time. I think this went over really well. I want to uh, let the uh, listeners also know that uh, QL Pierce, who joined me tonight, and yes, we we, we see the irony of <laughs> Thorn, Cross, and Pierce. It's weird. But anyway, 
sounds painful. But <laughs> but uh, uh, Chu's latest book is called Spine Chillers: Hair Raising Tells, and that's available too. That's uh, available in ebook, and it is in uh, the works to come out in paper. It should be out in just a just a week or two, I think, in paper. And uh, it's we've read I've read that and it's it's fantastic. So uh, if you are interested in uh, scary young adult stuff, be sure to check out uh, the Whistle Brass books by Briarly Mitchell and Jack Huey, our guests tonight, and uh, QL Pierce, uh, who did uh, the uh, Spine Chillers Hair Raising Tells. These are both really really great if you're into spooky stuff like that. Uh, this is. Uh, Thorn and Cross, Haunted Nights Live. We've had a blast with you guys, Briar and uh, Jack, and good job, Q. I think it was awesome. Oh, thank you. So, I had fun. Yes. Thank you, everybody, for being on the show, and thank you, everybody who listened. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams, and we will see you later. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. <laughs>